Welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast with your host Matthew Robinson and his gaming group. Welcome to round three, turn six. I squinch my face up as I try to remember those numbers. Uh, with me this week is the one, the only, the non-gamer, Dimitri Portnoy. Hello, and every time I hear the theme music, I miss Alfred again. I miss Alfred too. I wish he was here, but he is not. He is in Boston. Uh, but he'll be checking in. I hear he's going to be in town soonish, and I'm sure we'll try to wrangle him on the podcast. Uh, we were not here last week. We took a week off. We attempted to potentially record something at Strategicon, but we ended up just playing games. And knowing think, us, is that a surprise, really? I think I deserved it. I think we all deserved it. Um, it was a holiday weekend. We've been working hard. To get an entire day of gaming for me was a big deal, so we didn't end up spending two hours of it recording, We <laughs> met we some, thought maybe we would. We caught up with some great people and met some great people. Uh, Jennifer and Paul got into it about Paul's interpretation of uh, QE. Yeah, we QE, feel like yes. that Paul has broken our meta, and Jennifer came around. Jennifer Schlichtenberg, who's a, uh, a, a, a wonderful member of the board game community and, and uh, sort of a legend, uh, in, in the in the local Los Angeles gaming community. Uh, and she was trying to explain to Paul that his meta is incorrect. Um, I don't know if either one of them is right. I do feel like it's one, like Paul has made the game not fun, but it's not a dig on him at all. He's sort of like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And he sort of brought something into the meta that we, we talked about it in the podcast. The Paul was of course, weeks. Paul is amazing at that. We also played a game that almost broke us. Uh, New Angeles, yeah, yes. we'll, we'll talk about that. So we, um, we're gonna, let, let me just before we get into this week's game night and all the games we played, uh, we have a Facebook group. It is Game Brain Podcast on Facebook. We have uh, 215 members or so right now. It's a lovely little community, very, very uh, warm and welcoming for all. So feel free to join our Game Brain po- Game Brain Wow <laughs> Game Brain Group podcast on Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel. Edamaros Peleg, our wonderful graphic designer, puts up all of our clips onto YouTube. You can get reviews there. It's easy to share them with friends. He puts a lovely little graphic up there as well. Check out those two things. We actually have our very first complete fan submission song for the podcast right Thank now. Thank you. Uh, this is for our game night. Here it is. I mean, it's a little, it's still September. It's almost October. It's almost time for Halloween, but that Uh, gets me in the mood. I believe it's submitted by a Transylvanian, possibly. Uh, Someone from Croatia. His name is, and he does dare me to butcher his name on the show, and I'm happy to do so. Korneli Hechemozovic. I feel like I absolutely nailed it, and that's exactly how his name is most likely not said at all. Uh, but he says, I hope you like my little contribution to the great podcast that I enjoy very much. I know that I hope that you'll like it. If you want to change anything, please let me know. I don't. We'll keep it. Thank you so much. We keep love the songs it. Coming. I love it. We now have a game night to con. So, uh, yeah, Strategic Con. Uh, last week, we played a lot of Barrage. Barrage was definitely the game of the convention. We played it. I played it probably three times. It was probably played five or six times over the convention. We're really diving into it and trying. It, it has confounded us in a positive way. Um, I particularly struggle with the strategy of the game, but I love it uh, like an abusive 
uh, uh, ex-lover or something. <laughs> What's interesting to me about it is that in a lot of these games or games of this type, a card will come out with a catastrophe that's going to ruin your whole uh, strategy. And here, the catastrophe that's going to ruin your whole strategy is usually some other player controlling your water supply, building a dam upstream, well, I thought, I and thought you choking were... you off completely, which is very interesting in a Euro game. I thought you were going to say the only catastrophe that can befall you is your own misplays, which I feel is... I mean, I feel like in that... In, well, we will, we're actually probably going to review Barrage next week, but uh, I feel like everything that has been hard for me in Barrage has been my own damn fault. And I've been able to... Damn fault. Yeah, my damn fault. I should have seen it coming. Like what you said, if somebody can just steal your water supply and ruin the game for you, you completely could have seen that coming. If you've allowed yourself that opportunity to happen to you, then you could have prevented it. It's a very punishing game, uh, but it's also really fun to play, I found. I think we really like it. For me, it's just one of those games where there's just one extra bit of complexity that I could have done without. Not not any yeah. specific rule, but for me dealing with 12 complexities, I'd rather deal with 11. Or like Spinal Tap, this is the sure. knob that goes up to 11. I would prefer it to stay at 10. But it, it is, is an amazing game, it is nonetheless. Not a me- it, Barrage is not a medium weight game. Barrage is a heavy game. Um, I would I, the, the game it feels most similar to me is Age of Steam, which is, Age of Steam is not a heavy rules game, but a heavy strategy game. And if you, it's a game you could lose on the first turn. But it has many more factors than age of steam mm-hmm. it has many more mechanics oh it's much more complicated steam. than age of steam but i think it falls in the same brutal economy game um so we played a lot of barrage we also played city of big shoulders we also played a there was a, uh, a fantasy flight games called new angeles which is based on the uh, android uh, ip at fantasy flight games uh, which of course is most known for netrunner one of my favorite games of all time um, it was on sale. I bought it for like twenty dollars, and I, you know, I'd, I was always interested in it because I love the IP. And it's a six-person negotiation game and six-player games. Uh, Semi co-op. Semi co-op. If you know about our group, you know six-player games often get to the table because we often we usually have eight, but often two people are gone, and then we're stuck with six. And it's it's hard to find a good six-player game. So I'm willing to try almost any decent, halfway decent six-player game. And this was a tough game for our group because. Uh, we can be mean to each other. <laughs> and this is a game that will facilitate as much meanness as you want to throw uh, away. It's a game where your victory condition is likely to be get more points than some other player. Which I think is the most fascinating thing about the game. So at the beginning of the game, everybody is dealt cards, right? So you all have these asymmetrical corporations. And at the beginning of the game, you're dealt one card. You're either going to get your own corporation or somebody else's corporation, or the Federalists. So if you get your own corporation, you win the game by just being ahead of three other people, or two if it's the... you know two uh, Three, three other game. people, actually, no, even but if it, it's five. Even if it's five, it's going to be three other people. Right, but I, you could play three or four, and I think it sure. goes down to two. But uh, Or if you get somebody else's, the only thing you have to do in the whole game is beat that one person at the table. That's it. doesn't matter if you are second to last... As long as you're not last and that person is, you win the game. The last one you can get is sort of the betrayer mechanic, the sort of Battlestar Galactica Cylon, right? Which is where your job is to make sure everybody else loses except you. Not that you're in first place, but there is a semi-co-op thing that the the, the quote-unquote bad guys can win and everybody instantly loses. And so you become that person. But that person 
there's always one extra card that's dealt out. So you don't always have that person in every game. There is a one out of how many players you have chance that. Yeah, that player wins if the city descends into chaos, which we're supposed to prevent. Right. Um, It's a long game. I don't necessarily think it's a game that we'll ever play again because it is a three to four hour game, especially with our group, how deep we get into negotiations and LARPing. Um, And I don't necessarily know if it was uh, fun as much as it was (laughs) a uh, I I felt attacked because uh, people pretended that beating me was their victory condition (laughs) by attacking me, uh, where... Actually, neither of the people who took points away from me had to have that. Yeah. They were masking. They, they were uh, act, play acting yeah. by attacking me. Please don't do that, well, I think, Jesse I think, and Paul. I think one of the, the I, I ended up getting Jesse and Jesse got me. And then we just ended up the entire game in a fight for just, you know, he had to be ahead of me. I had to be ahead of him. And it just sort of, it wasn't as fun as if I had someone who didn't have me. Because then there's a little more. I think it, be, it became pretty clear to both of us that we had each other at a certain point. And I don't necessarily know if that was a fun experience for us. And it was a lot harder for us than I think anybody else in the game because other people just had to be ahead of people who had nothing, who didn't care about them. But Jesse and I, own, our whole game was just beating each other and it just sort of became a tug of war, which wasn't necessarily fun. And he, and he destroyed me. And, and Jesse is your single white female. Is he not, uh, you know, growing his hair in mm-hmm. your style and, and right. having the general body type, started, having two kids, just he, you, like you, you know? all those things ahead of me. So I think if, if anyone's the single white female, it's probably me in the situation. Uh, so that was strategic on. Uh, last game night, we played Gugong. Tom had never played it, and uh, our friend Ben Hoyt joined us. A couple of people had never played it before. Um, and it is, it's an interesting medium weight game. I think my, we may talk about it one day on the podcast, but my, my overall thoughts on it are, it's fun, but I, uh, and I wouldn't mind if it's brought to the table, but I don't know if I would ever go like, let's play Gugong tonight. You know, I don't know if it's all that, uh, interesting to me. There is uh, we'll get into some news this week, but there is a expansion for it recently, uh, on Kickstarter. Uh, we also played tiny towns, which is a fun little quick game. And the new edition of love letter has been getting a lot of play around here because it is fast and fun. And I don't know. I just love love letter. I think not everybody in our group likes it, but, um, it's not really a game as much as just something silly to do for 15 minutes, but I, yeah, I, yeah, I, but I always can just be, really enjoy it. It can be really upsetting too. So, yeah, so. but it's so fast that I don't mind that. Absolutely. Uh, last week's game, last week's last night's game night at Tom's. I did not go to, you didn't go to either Dimitri. I, I actually went to the first hour of it. So uh, I stayed for the fun light games and then I realized I was falling asleep. Gotcha. Well, I hear because they... I saw it too. Oh, I'm seeing a it tonight. Late show. No spoilers. No spoilers. Yeah, yeah. And no, no, it'll keep you awake, which, which is an achievement for me lately. But, but, but then I get home at three o'clock and I start yeah. writing and I don't get any sleep. Well, that's not good. Well, Rachel and I saw the first one while she was pregnant with our first son. And now we're seeing the second one while she's pregnant with our second child, which is a, an unusual achievement to unlock. Uh, I believe pregnant. your children are and will be very <laughs> special. And scared of clowns. Uh, but last night after you left, they played Great Western Trail, which uh, I checked. And that does count as uh, checking off a box in our 8x8. Even though I wasn't there, there was enough podcasters there. There was three of them there last night. That counts. We're checking a box in the Great Western Trail. Shall we get into the news, Dimitri? Can't wait. Here is the news song. Good evening, Mr. Mr. Nob of South America. All the tips and clippers and see. Let's go to press. The big news of the week is Tapestry went live for pre-orders through Stonemeyer Games' official website. They are at first selling, I believe, about 10 
to 15, maybe about 10,000 copies on their website exclusively until it goes to retail in November. Uh, the pre-order sold out completely in 36 hours. They, uh, the price was announced at $79.99 online and I think $89.99 retail, which is about what you all thought. I, I think it was actually about $10 less than I had assumed it would be. Um, this is a game you were incredibly looking forward to. Am, it is my most excited game at the moment. I, of course, woke up early to get my order in, and I did. And uh, Congratulations. Thank you very much. You didn't have to send Trey halfway across I the country. This time. Hopefully that will be in my, uh, my sweaty, excited hands in the next seven days or so. Unpacking video, please. Yes, of course. Um, well, I think I'm, everybody's done them ahead of me. I don't think they're necessary anymore. But uh, that's exciting. It's coming out. Um, if you missed your opportunity to pre-order it through their website, I highly recommend that you call your friendly local game shop and ask them if they pre-ordered any copies because the, I think uh, he had, this is for, first print run is 25,000 copies, which is ginormous for the board game hobby. 25,000 copies is Fantasy Flight Games level. I mean, this is, for a small company, these print runs are ridiculous. Um, and I think he had 10,000 for himself and 15,000 for the FLGSs. So the lion's share is still gonna be out there and available in the coming, I think it's coming in uh, October or November. And then a second print run might sell in December. So um, much like Wingspan, this is going to be a very hard game to get for a while. So if it's at all interesting to you and you think it's worth the money, then you should definitely check it out. Just in time for Hanukkah. <laughs> exactly. Chan-chan. Um, the Mind, which is a fun quote-unquote game that we have enjoyed, um, which is basically a, a game of at the beginning of Ghostbusters when... Uh, Bill Murray is trying to make the people read their minds through the cards. It's basically that's what the mind is. I think it's awesome. I've played it with Paul. And if you get into a groove, it's remarkable yeah. how you can read each other's what's my next card. Right. Well, there is a new version of the mind coming out called the Mind Extreme, which basically sounds like it takes two. Now, now, now you usually have to play with a deck of one to 100 cards, right? Yes. What if you had two decks from one to 50? And you had to play them both simultaneously, but one deck is ascending and one deck is descending. My mind is blown. <laughs> well, that's what the mind extreme is. You're going to be playing with two different decks now. One deck is going to have red colored numbers. The other is going to have white colored numbers. The white ones have to go ascending. The red ones have to go descending. And you have a, a mixed hand of both. Good luck. One of us is colored blind. Is that not uh, I'm sure. Oh, in our group, you mean? Yes. I don't I could think be. we do have somebody who's colorblind in our group. Hmm. I'll try to remember who it is. It may not be in this group, maybe. Well, I'm sure. I'm, I'm hoping those colors they chose were colorblind friendly. Um, but either way, that is going to be debuting at Spiel 19 this year, just a few months away, so soon. Um, but that is exciting if you like the mind and you felt the mind was too easy and you already are a pro at ESP. Um, Kanban EV has been announced. Kanban, the incredible game from Vital Lacerda, one of my very favorite of his games, which is about a Japanese car manufacturing company, um, has announced a new edition called Kanban EV. EV stands for electric vehicle. So we're uh, about time from the, from, from the same designer as uh, CO2. He's definitely into uh, making his uh, feelings known on the way our planet is heading towards uh, shore demise. I think the Justice Department is filing a suit against uh, the game. <laughs> yeah, it's fake news. Um, so yeah, that is going to be coming out not till 2020 on Kickstarter, but uh, Vital has, ex people were wondering what is the difference? Is this a whole new version? Is it Kanban 2.0? Vital himself has uh, chimed in on BGG and I will read you what he said. I'm designing a small expansion called Fast Charging. It's a scoring modifier. No 
changes in the game at all, only a few additions on tiles and cards, some tweaks on the mechanics to make them a bit less fiddly like the chairs and the admin. The theme will change to EVs instead of ICE cars, so different parts will be on the game and a solo mode will be added. The biggest changes are basically the art and the game production. Thank you, Lacerda. I thought the uh, chairs uh, were fiddly. <laughs> they are fiddly. Yeah, yeah, and... and <laughs> Uh, seeing it correctly may uh, change my entire mind. So if you haven't bought a copy of Kanban yet and were interested, you might want to wait uh, another year or so as Kanban EV will come. And it sounds like it's just going to be sort of a refined and tweaked version. Although I will say that the refined and tweaked version of CO2 wasn't necessarily a better game. Uh, depending on your group, your mileage may vary on that. So maybe it's worth checking out and finding out uh, you know, which one you like first. Um, another great game that is getting a new version is Madeira Collector's Edition and Expansion. Uh, this is a wonderful game from um, What's Your Game, which is a company that makes uh, one game a year, and they're always wonderful and heavy. Um, and Madeira is my favorite game they've ever made. Um, I absolutely love Madeira. Madeira is as heavy as games get, I think. It is an extremely heavy Euro game. Um, I, you know, it, I'd say it's even heavier than Barrage or... or um, Tricarion or games like that. It is very heavy, very complicated, and I love it. Um, it is coming September 24th, so just in a couple weeks, to Kickstarter with a new version that will have a expansion in it. So why does this matter? Well, the game's been out of print for a long time. Very hard to get and expensive, so this is the opportunity to get it. They're going to be tweaking some things on it. I think some components are going to be a little bit better. They're going to sort of, you know, uh, deluxify it, if you will. Um, I definitely am interested in checking it out. I love the game. I don't know if, 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 if I need to have a brand new version of it or if I can just get the expansion separately, but I am definitely going to check it out as it is uh, one of my favorite games ever. Is it the winemaking game with that rondel? Um, is there a rondel? It is the one where you have to clear the fields first and then you're planting wine, but then you're sending some on ships to different places. There's yes. dice that you're rolling as yes. well. Um, but the dice are sort of how many actions you can take at that location. Um, you've definitely played it. I've definitely I played have, it with you I have. numerous times. But we play that other wine in Vinos. Uh, we, there's much a lot of more. wine games. There's I, I Madeira, think because there's there are Vinos, more players. There's Viticulture. Uh, Madeira is not just a wine game. Wine is one of the resources in the game. But um, Madeira, of course, is a, a an after-dinner liqueur. Oh, oh, Portuguese, yeah. It's like I a think? sherry, I yeah, think. Like it's a like sherry. A, they're exactly. equivalent of a sherry. Uh, a couple new heavy board games announced. Cooper Island is the newest game on, uh, on pre-sale from Capstone Games. From the designer of La Granja, which I haven't played, but I know Tom has and likes it a lot. This is a heavy, heavy game. Uh, $60 right now, 70 retail. It plays two to four players, and it looks like it has some sort of a, uh, a age of exploration theme. Um, a lot of boats, a lot of, it uh, looks a little bit, um, not piratey, but it definitely has sort of an island, uh, I don't want to say colonizing, because hopefully that's not what they're doing again, uh, vibe, but it, 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 it's beautiful components. Um, it's definitely worth checking out. I'm, I'm sort of slowing back on my pre-orders from Capstone Games at the moment as I have a child coming. Um, but if this had been six months ago, <clears throat> excuse me, I think um, I would have definitely pre-ordered it. Uh, Another uh, new expansion, which we talked about um, the game in our games played this week, Gugong has a new expansion out uh, on Kickstarter right now. By the time you hear this, you will have seven days left to back it. Um, it is called Gugon Panjun Deluxe Expansion. So Gugon, if you don't know what it is, has a wonderful theme, which is there was uh, in uh, ancient China, they passed a law wherein you could no longer bribe people under penalty of death. 
So people found ways around that by giving each other gifts. So in order uh, to get what you wanted, you'd give somebody a gift and they'd give you back a less good gift. And that was the same thing as a bribe. Uh, but it was not punishable by death. And so the game of Gugong is literally played as you go to all these different places in the city and you are trying to get people to give you what you want and you have to give them a better gift than they're offering you. So the gifts are cards and they're numbers. So in order to take an action, if the action on the location says five, you have to play higher than a five in order to get the action. And then you take that card and those cards then become your cards for next round. It's a very, it's a really fun mechanic and very smart. Um, Panjun looks to be a whole bunch of modules for, in fact, um, I don't have the deluxe fancy Kickstarter version. I have the regular retail version and this Kickstarter does not look like it can help me because the only thing you can buy is the fancy one, which will then not, uh, play with your retail one. I believe it'll, well, I think the bits won't line up. Um, so I think I, I either have to start all over and sell what I have and buy their sort of fancy deluxified with the expansion kicked in or just wait for retail. So if you also have the retail, those are your options. Sounds like that whole shaver and razor blades thing what's that well you buy the shaver and you have to stick with the razor blades right. and that's where they get you yeah exactly so yeah um but i did not buy the kickstarter version i just bought it retail and they're different versions but check it out if you liked uh gugong which a lot of people do and i like it as well i'm just not um it's not blowing my socks off uh then you should check that out a third new edition of azul has been announced uh, azul is the fun uh, tile laying game that was a huge hit in the last few years came out at essen 2016 if i'm not uh, incorrect uh, michael kiesling was a wonderful designer um, this one is called azul summer pavilion and it has new shaped tiles they look like diamonds and it looks like you're sort of making flowers but we're still we're still tile making and building tiles and trying to score points um the, I didn't. I never bought the last Azul version. Uh, I forget what that was called as well. But it just sort of seemed like a different version of Azul. And so now you're gonna have lots of different options for your Azul, and you can sort of just check out whichever one you like and buy the one that I guess sort of looks the most interesting to you. But I think they all have pretty basic rules, pretty similar rules. Underwater Cities, which is a heavy game that we like a lot, with a caveat, feeling that it is slightly imbalanced at the moment. We've been asking for an extension for an expansion. Underwater Cities New Discoveries has been announced and is uh, launching at Essen 2019. Um, not only are they gonna be uh, upgrading the components for the base game in this expansion, but they're gonna be adding a whole bunch of new modules as well. They have not given a lot of information about what actual gameplay changes they're gonna make. The only thing they've really showed off is they've been teasing some upgraded components. So people sort of had a terraforming Mars feel with underwater cities where the components just felt a little lackluster. Um, and so they have decided to upgrade the thickness of all the cardboard and the player boards. They even teased on Facebook, you can check it out if you go to their Facebook page, uh, Delicious Games, that they teased a dual layer player board where you actually your pieces fit in and sort of slot in nicely. Oh, neat. Like in your edition of... Uh the Mar uh, terraforming Mars, exactly. where the cubes fit well, that's into the, a that A lot of us uh, terraforming Mars cut. players have yeah. been forced to come up with aftermarket solutions. Uh, mine is a broken token. Um, but yeah, Underwater Cities looks that they're going to make you, you know, not have to dive into the uh, aftermarket options and give you some lovely components as well. And as long as you're buying the box, they'll throw in some new expansions. And hopefully it will deal with what we felt pretty strongly was an overpowered kelp strategy, which sort of um, was unbeatable. Never failed to win. Unfortunately. Um, shall we move on 
to that is the news. Let us now move on to games on the brain as I stall to find the song. Here it is. Terror from Mars, Forbidden Stars, Heaven and Ale, Great Western Trail, Too Many Bones, Game of Thrones, Order, Avalon, Crokinole, Blood Bowl, Time Stories, Categories, Woven Flames, Codenames, Rising Sun, Cash and Guns, Scripts and Scribes, Five Tribes, Web of Power, Keyflower, Mage Knife, Arkwright, Escape Plan, Wingspan. Look, I know we have two different songs for the Games on the Brain section, and I'm going to alternate. This week was that one. Why did I get that one? <laughs> uh, let's talk about games we're obsessed with. I'll let you start, Demetri. Any games you're currently obsessed with? No. Very good. I am obsessed with Barrage. We talked about it. I've been playing it constantly. I've been thinking about strategies. I've been trying new things. Um, we have not yet gotten the expansion to the table. When I kickstarted it, it came with the expansion, as many Kickstarters are wont to do. And we have not felt like we have exhausted the possibilities of the base game enough to throw the expansion in yet. Um, we also keep teaching new people the game. And, like me. And it is wildly complicated. And the thought of adding in even more worker placement locations is absurd uh, to a new player. So I was impressed uh, that when Paul taught the game to Jake and me yeah. uh, during your last game night, uh, we actually finished it. Uh, and okay. none of us expected it. Well, I don't think it's a wildly long game. With a teach, it's three hours, I think. I think that's fair. Yeah. So um, it's heavy, but it's compact. Yeah, no, this is a four-player game. You can crank out in two hours if you know the game. Absolutely. This is not, this is not a wildly long game, which is interesting, because Age of Steam can be wildly long, and a lot of usually very heavy games are very long games. But this is a very heavy game that's pretty much a two-hour game. Um, we haven't tried the expansion yet. It might extend it a little bit. Uh, my thoughts on it so far are, uh, strategy-wise, being that pink feels underpowered to me. There are four different countries in the game. I think pink is French, if I'm not mistaken. There's France, Italy, America, and... What is the fourth one? <laughs> I'm not remembering. Germany. Eng Germany, sorry. Not England, okay. No, Germany. Those are the four. The, the theme of the game is bizarre it's um steampunk alternate history 1930s uh uh hydroelectric plants and yeah like tva what's that but in an all the tennessee valley authority where franklin delano roosevelt oh, okay. electrified the yes, south sure yes so this is you are, are are warring countries in the swiss alps fighting for control of the the waterways of the swiss alps in order to power your steampunk and mech powered like there's literally mechs are your workers like little uh, and ultimately and world war ii this is where all that I is guess, heading, i yeah. don't i mean i don't i mean this is an alternate history which is maybe why they got around that because they were like what are we funding here with this electricity <laughs> like oh we'll just make it robots in sci-fi because like the characters in the game have like robot arms and stuff and you're like but it's 1930s i don't know it's a bizarre theme and it feels uh, I'll just say it tacked on. <laughs> uh, may I say that Carl Chapek had robots in the 1920s uh, in his play on robots. the war. They're called robots, though, right? Uh, uh, no, no, they're robots. Oh, that, well, that's, that's how they said it on like Twilight Zone. They'd say like robots. Uh, Carl Chapek actually came up with the term robot. I only know Carl Chudik, who designed Innovation and Glory to Rome. So I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but we've been playing uh, a lot of Barrage, and I am a little worried that Pink is underpowered. If you've played it at all, tell me know what, let me know what you think. Um, where I'm excited, that's one of my main reasons I'm excited to get the expansion to the table is that I feel that that is a weak link in the game is that whoever gets stuck there is potentially um, in trouble. Also, there are three waterways in the game, and in a four-player game, the fourth player isn't going to get access to one of them right away. And that could be an issue too. Lots of things we're discussing as a group and wondering, um, trying to, you know, I mean, that's what you do. We explore the space and we push the boundaries to see if 
uh, true balance has been achieved. And if there, if we cannot find true balance ways of, uh, maybe thinking of new strategies that designers had in mind that we have not yet come up with. So in the game that the three of us played, Paul won and he chose, he chose not to produce any electricity in the first round. Yeah. Which in is in favor of building. It's just fascinating. Yeah. There, there's a lot to explore in this game where it's, I, I, it's early to say it now, but as of right now, I'd have to say it's my my favorite game of the year, new game. Um, it is a very exciting game. Excitedly waiting on Tapestry, as I've said, I cannot wait to play it. I have a feeling not all the gamers in our group will like it. I don't know. I Part of me feels like Trey and Tom aren't going to be big fans of it, but I, every time I buy a game, I sort of wonder in my head who's going to like it, who's not. I think Paul's going to like it. I know Jake will love it. I think Jesse will, I don't know. Jesse could go either way. I think Dimitri will like it. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if the dice in the game turn off Tom and Trey completely or if, they're, or if they actually are an issue. I don't know yet until we actually play it. Um, I'm very into the game Undaunted Normandy. Uh, Paul and I spent a couple hours together exploring it at Strategicon together. We played through, I think, four scenarios out of ten. Um, it's really interesting. It is a deck-building, um, tactical World War II game. Two-player so, game. Two-player right? only, yep. Straight deck builder, real deck builder, but with a full map that you're controlling uh, all of your different uh, squads on. So you've got your, you know, your artillery A division, your artillery B, and your riflemen, and blah, 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 and your scouts. And the cards in your hand that you draw are actually decide who can activate that round. So if I draw a rifleman A card, rifleman A can take actions, things like that. Um, really interesting, really smart design. Feels very original and cool. Um, and excited to continue on it. And I, th I think if you're looking for a good two-player deck building game, it's pretty innovative and interesting and definitely worth a look, especially if you like war games. It could be a really good uh, intro-level war game for people. I am impatiently waiting for Dune to arrive. Um, I've heard end of... Muad'Dib! Yeah, Muad'Dib. Uh, I've heard end of September, September 27th, perhaps. I've already pre-ordered it, but I'm desperately waiting for it to arrive because I really would like to get a wonderful, long, exciting six-player game of Dune in before my baby comes in the middle of October. Uh, lastly, I got Capstone's Irish Gage in this week, which I'm excited to maybe get to the table this week. Uh, this is a three to five player, one hour long stock market train game. Mm -hmm. One hour long. That's genuine. That is the, that is the playtime of this game. This is not a four hour game. This is genuinely a one hour game. Um, it is a, uh, a cube rails game is the sort of the genre, which I had never played before, but that that's an actual genre that exists. It's instead of laying track, you're laying cubes. So cube rails is, is the genre that, that it is a part of. Um, I'm very excited to check it out. It sounds fun and fast and um, a lot of uh, a lot of elbows thrown in this game. I think it could be a jabby, fun sort of stock market train laying game, um, but playing in an hour. It's, 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 I'm always interested in, in heavy games that can play in short periods of time. Um, and that is it for Games on the Brain. The update on the 8x8 challenge. Well, thank you very much for the three martyrs last night who played uh, Great Western Trail for us and allowed us to check one box. It's like the first one in a couple weeks. We've been horrible at it. I literally have had Concordia sitting on the table here waiting for people to play it with me every week, and we just have not got to the table because we have too many new, fun, exciting games from Gen Con. Dimitri, shall we move into this week's review? We shall. You said jabby elbows in Ireland, and here we have... Big Shoulders in Chicago. Hey, our review of the week, which I probably forgot to uh, tee up at the beginning of the episodes, but I'll do it now, is a game called City of the Big Shoulders. City of the Big Shoulders 
is uh, from a designer, a new designer named Raymond Chandler III. The artist is Emily R. Deering and Andreas Rich. Any Rich. relation on the Raymond Chandler? Uh, I do not believe so. No, I think he, in a fact he said no. Because that uh, third is very deceptive. Yes, I could be wrong. And teasing. Uh, publisher is Parallel Games. Um, it has a completely different name in Europe. It goes by the name Chicago 1875, City of the Big Shoulders. Um, and the name Chicago 1875 should give you an idea of what genre of game this is because it is, in essence, an 18xx game. Um, with, with a major difference because they discard the whole track laying um, railroad running thing and they replace it with a very interesting, fulfilling, quite standard worker placement. Absolutely. So it plays two to four players. The weight on BGG is 3.84, so very heavy. Very, very, very heavy. I would rate it a little lighter than that. I would too, actually. I'd say it's about a 3.5. But um, playtime is 120 to 180 minutes. I'd say you're, you are looking at a th- you're looking at a three-hour game. It took us three hours uh, at Gen Con with four people to learn the rules and go through three of the five moves. Uh, three of the five turns. So you didn't even finish it. Yeah, I would think with a teacher looking at four plus hours. Yeah, four, four. Four people who have played the game before, I think you can knock it out in three hours. Although we'll get into some of my issues with the game and, and they have to do with the ability of players to really extend the game. Um, so let's talk about this. Now, first blush, um, this is a combination of a game called Arkwright, which is a game that Capstone Games uh, re-released a few years ago, which is a fantastic, heavy, um, industrial era sort of company running game and uh, and combined with an 18xx. So what do we mean when we say that? So 18xx meaning that this is a stock market manipulation game. So this is a game where you are going to be starting companies and whoever has the most stock in that company is deemed the president and the president could potentially lose control of the company if somebody buys more stock than them or as they say, dump the company if they get rid of more stock than someone who has more stock than them. Buy low, sell high. Right. Then they, but you don't have to be the president to be involved in the company. You could own stock in a company, and every time that company produces their goods, you make money, the company makes money, the president makes money. You have a, uh, a personal supply of cash and a company supply of cash, and all that matters at the end of the game is your personal supply of cash. You After you sell the stock. Right, exactly. At the end of the game, you sell all the stock. I want to say that at Gen Con, at the end of... Uh, uh, turn strategic three. On, strategic Thank on. you. At Strategic Con, at the end of turn three, which is when we stopped playing, I was the only one of four players who had not yet diversified, and I was about to buy other players' stock. So buying other players' stock, uh, seeing which companies are promising, is a major component and a very interesting component of the game. Yeah, and a huge part of 18xx. And so, I mean, it feels like this designer took all the things they love. And this is just me. I have not spoken to the designer, although Trey did, but I, I did not. So I, this is somebody who loved a lot of things about Arkwright, loved a lot of things about 18xx, and loves a lot of things about worker placement games, and has put them all into one lovely Frankenstein box. And in terms of the worker placement, this is one of the most fulfilling worker placement I've experienced, uh, where uh, you genuinely always have a decision to make with your worker placement, whether to improve your company in some way or, or, or to get raw materials uh, uh, or, or, or to uh, promote the stock that feel like significant actions. You, I never felt locked out. Uh, I never felt like there was nothing to do. 
Yeah, so let's talk about, about the different parts of the game. So first of all, at the beginning of the game, the main thing you're doing is you are starting a company. Everybody at the beginning of the game must start a company. And you do that by buying the president's share. And the president's share is the value of three stocks. So the president's share is 30% of the company. Um, and then every stock after that is 10. Then there is a preferred share, which, worth is, which is worth 20. And the president can never own the preferred share. So if you're the president, you can't own the preferred share. Also, I think the maximum you can have is 60% of a company. So you could own the president's share and then three more shares. But at the beginning of the game, all you're doing is starting a company. And if you know 18xx, you'll know a lot of these terms going in, but I'll explain them. Uh, when you start a company, you must select the par value. The par value is how much each stock in the game will start at. And I believe you start the game with $175 and you can par at either 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80, something like that. And that also means that 50 is kind of an interesting number. Uh, you can't go 60 because then you can't buy 100. Right. Oh, 60 is the highest, you're right. So they, they have a nice thing where 60 is a potential par value, but not at the beginning of the game because you only have $175 and 60 times three is 180, you're $5 short. So you decide where you par your company. And all that's really saying is how expensive your stock will be in the first round because your stock will go up or down depending on how well your company runs in the next few rounds. Um, well, how well you run it. Right, exactly. But so one, one thing that's interesting in this game is I don't think it really matters who's running the company. In 18xx, the, the owner of the company, I think, has a lot more ability to uh, make mistakes and <laughs> they don't auto run themselves. You know, the, you have to know strategically the best routes to take, like who the president is in an 18xx game, of course, depending on the, the 18xx you're playing, can, can, really be, can really be important in terms of who runs the company. But I think in, in City Big Shoulders, um, it doesn't necessarily matter who runs it. I mean, of course, some people are going to be a little strategically smarter than others, but I think it's really just about looking at the stock market and deciding where the most value you can get for your dollar is at the moment and deciding to invest in those companies. Um, so anyway, you start a company in the beginning of the game and you get a certain amount of stock. Then you do a stock round. Everybody can buy more stock. You still only have $175. So if you part at 50, you only have, you know, $25. And by the way, buy somebody else's stock. the money that you buy the stock with goes into your company coffers right. and you decide how to spend it on various improvements, raw materials, employees, etc. And that is a huge part of 18xx games, which is having this different pile of money and keeping your company money different from your personal money and your company, you can never just take money out of the company. Um, because you don't know, you know, you're just a, you're the president of the company, you don't own the company. Um, so your money is separate, but any money that you buy stocks with is now company treasury money that you can use in the company to do things. So what are you doing in this game once you've started a company? Well, first of all, let me just tell you about the companies because these are all based on actual companies uh, that were started up in Chicago in the uh, late 19th century, I believe we're looking at here. Yeah, so the first line of the Carl Sandburg poem, Chicago is hog butcher of the world. You're right. butchering hogs. So City of the Big Shoulders is is based at the title, which is bizarre and, and, and at first blush uh, makes no sense, but is from a famous poem that is on the inside of the box, uh, which Dimitri just said. Um, so all of these companies are based on actual companies that uh, were started in or around Chicago in that period of time. you got the Cracker Jack Company. Everybody loves Cracker Jacks. The Anglo-American Provision Company. Uh, C.M. Henderson Shoes, Elgin Watches, a lot of these companies still exist. A.G. Spalding, of course, Spalding, very famous for their basketballs. Libby McKinney and Libby, that's some sort of food. 
Doggett, Bassett, and Hill is shoes. Floorsheim shoes, that still sure. exists. Uh, Oscar Meyer, we all love them for their hot dogs, unless you're vegan. Uh, Arnold, they make vegan hot dogs, hey, I'm sure. Doesn't. Arnold Schwinn and Company, of course, Schwinn Bicycles, very famous. The Quaker Oats Company, who doesn't love a bowl of Quaker Oats in the morning. American Flyer, they make the, those little carts Wagons, your children yes. sit in. Swift and Company, which is pigs. And Brunswick, which is bowling balls and uh, billiard sticks. So there you go. Those are the kind of companies. So you're not starting, you know, the, the train lines in America. You're no, no. starting these, these lovely little these companies. These are game companies within games. Exactly. Yeah. And so each one of these companies gives you your own little charter that you get where you're going to keep all your goods on it. And it also has a certain number of factories on them. The factories are sort of spaces on the charter. And they either have two or three factories and the factories require a certain amount of workers in order to operate. Then the, then the workers can be replaced by automation, which can make more goods. And then it tells you how much each one of those goods sells for. And so that's sort of your goal during the next phase of the game, which is the worker placement phase of the game, is to get those goods you need in order to make your company run. Because you can buy goods, you can hire workers, you can hire management, you can hire sales personnel uh, that increase the value of your goods when when you sell them um, and uh, different companies have different fiddly things to them That's they right. produce different numbers of goods different kinds of goods can be improved in different ways and interestingly enough I, I really feel that some of these companies uh, are good at the beginning of the game where you can get them into production mm -hmm. faster and some of them are better at the end of the game where they will produce more and higher priced goods once they really get going. Right. And, and not all of these can be, companies can be improved in the same ways. And there are four different types. Every one of the companies that I read to you is a part of a different type of company. So there's either uh, meat or dry goods or shoes, or I believe it's just sort of goods, handmade goods, like, which is sort of the watches and things like that. Um, so you buy those and then you move into the big. So the biggest difference here between an 18XX and this dry game. goods, dry, dry goods. Well, is no, the dry goods is, is, is the sort of Cracker Jacks. Oh, okay. Um, I forget what the other one's called, but it has the little uh, sewing, uh, sewing machine as their symbol. Um, so the next phase of the game, in, in an 18XX, you'd usually have a big map that is f empty and you'd be filling it with uh, uh, train tracks, right? And creating lines between places. And instead, you do not have a map of any country or train tracks that you're placing down. Instead, you have this lovely board with a lot of worker placement spots on it. Um, a wonderful, nice thing this game does that I don't think I've seen really in any other worker placement game is you are creating the worker placement spaces as you go. You have seen it. You've seen it in La Havre. Remember how in La Havre, in the addition buildings. to buying ships, yeah. uh, you pay for buildings where you can place workers. Yeah. This is a very similar mechanism. Mm, you're right. You're right. Uh, except that you choose and put the buildings in by rote you don't really pay for them uh it's something you do every round right and, and there's and no end game scoring based on them which in lahav there is but that's right but you're right yeah so in the sense that everybody is going to be dealt three buildings uh, uh, these little tiles in every round in every round and then every round you're going to keep one to play one to permanently get rid of from the game and one to hold for the next round and then every round you're going to get two more and you're going to always have three when you're placing so everybody places their tile face down and then you flip up at the same time and those are the new worker spaces. So there's still about 10 or 12 worker placement that start on the board at the beginning of the game. And every round, depending on the number of players, you're going to be adding you know, three to five. Yeah, interestingly, some of these worker placement tiles are exclusive. 
meaning you block people out, mm-hmm. and, and some of them are not. So you can always go there if, uh, even if somebody else is there. Also, unlike in La Havre and uh, a lot of other games, the workers get cleared Right. from uh, all the spaces at the beginning of every round. Again, this is, in term, this is a very forgiving, in my opinion, worker space mechanism, Yeah, worker placement mechanism. Well, and so, and, and the building that you put down, um, you may not get to go to, depending on player order, somebody may go there ahead of you, but you're going to get some sort of benefit when they go there. Yeah, usually you, money. Usually money, either to your personal money or to uh, your treasury, your company treasury. And remember, that is money that comes out of that person's corporate account not yeah, well, personal depend- yeah account. that's the nice thing the buildings have these great uh this great iconography that sort of explains where the money comes from and where the money goes to because sometimes it's from the bank to a player from a bank to a company from a company to a company it can be very different so the, the buildings always tell you where they go but the worker placement spaces are going to give you what you'd imagine they're going to give you uh people that will help run your companies they'll help you uh, get rid of those people and replace them with automation they'll help you get the actual goods that you need in order to run your company so this is a game where you're turning cubes into money. So you have Haymarket Square. Cubes into goods into money. Cubes into goods into money. So you're going to have to buy a certain amount of goods. So I think there's coal and silk and, I don't know, meat and whatever these four different. There's pink and brown and white and blue. And those are the cubes, and they all represent different things. Um, coal and steel and water and I don't know. So you have to get those things. And your company, each one of your factories will tell you how many different colored cubes and in what order you need them in order to make that turn into goods, which you can then sell. So during the worker placement, you're usually making sure that you have all the goods you need. And there is a huge amount of jockeying for this. Turn order is wildly important here. And turn order is going to be based on um, the... Who's the last person to buy uh, stock? Right. But then then you can change the turn order based on... Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, obviously yes, a space there's a you can space go to can that go will to. move your position on the turn order. But it can be really important to get the things you need. Because if you don't get the goods you need to run your company, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. If you have a round where your company doesn't produce, um, you're behind and you're in trouble in the same way that you would be in uh, any 18xx game. If your trains don't run, you're in some trouble. But in, in the game that we played uh, um, at Strategicon, what that translated to is that uh, you didn't make as many goods as you could have. You still made some goods and you still could bump up your stock and, and, and have a return on the investment, just not as much, not by two or three times the value yeah, of the stock, that's true. but one time the value of the stock. Right. So once everybody's placed their workers and you get more workers as the game goes on and there's multiple ways to get more workers um, to be adding out there. I think the word workers is a little confusing. I think they call them partners or something. And then your workers are actually these little things that the help. The people who work run. in the factories exactly. and die at 40 of lung disease <laughs> sure. or something. Uh, after that, then we go to uh, the production phase. This is where you actually run your companies. And the companies are run in appeal order. So appeal being how, uh, how, how much people want your products sort of the popularity of your company, the appeal of your company's products. And that uh, is something that can go up or down depending on um, actions that you take throughout the game. And also on whether your stock pays off dividends or not. Correct. And so each company starts with a different appeal level. So that's part of your decision when you're choosing which companies to start. Um, They start different places in appeal. And appeal decides the order you run in. And the order that your companies produce is probably the most important thing in this game. It can really decide everything because you are selling your goods to a fixed market every round. And the market will uh, sort of has these beautiful thick card. They could have just been cards, but they made them these lovely thick cardboard pieces um, that have a certain amount of circles on them. And those circles decide how many goods 
can go there. And that is a mechanism from one of your favorite games, if not your favorite game. If you remember in Trois, mm -hmm. you also have cards that represent people who attack the city. Right, sure, sure. And you can put cubes on them yeah, the to clear them. Yeah. Uh, so this is a mechanism that has been adopted uh, mm -hmm. from war, from attacking mm -hmm. to market. Right. With the difference that here you get a bonus if you complete right. the card. So you can be the last person. Let's say somebody wants six Bacons, mm -hmm. so, uh, and if you're the sixth bacon, you're going to get a bonus, even if somebody else had placed five of the goods on the card. That's right. So there's three different rows that these cards go into. The farthest left row has no bonus. The middle row has a small bonus, and the right row has a big bonus. So if you are the last person to sell a good to a card on that row, you get whatever the value of the card is, or the value of that good is, plus the bonus. I think it's either 30 or 50, things like that. So that just adds to the amount of money that you've made that round. So every good you sell, the price of the good is based on your company will tell you how much goods are valued at. So let's say your goods are 30 and you sell five, that's uh, 150. And then if, if that fifth one filled a card and that's another 50, that's 200. Okay, so let's say you've made $200 that round. So what do you do? Well, much like an 18XX, now you have to pay out dividends. So now what you do is you take that number, 200, and you lose the final zero from it. Your number is now 20. Why? Because you've divided it by 10, because there are 10 stocks for every company. So the value, the dividends you're paying out right now are 20. If this sounds like complicated math, it isn't. You get used to it really quickly. You just lop the last number off, and then you just start handing things out. So everybody with a share gets 20 if you made 200. So uh, Jake across the table has three shares. Okay, Jake gets uh, 60 bucks, um, and this all goes into your personal money not for your you to spend money. on buying more stocks more stock next round right and and any uh, any shares left in the company so let's say i have the president share right so i'd get 60 bucks jake has three that's uh 60 bucks for him and now there's four shares left that nobody's bought those four shares are owned by the company the rest of the money goes into the company treasury and that's how you do it now you then look at your where your marker is on the stock market track so if my company was at 60 if I made 200, you have to ask yourself, uh, well, it's three times, right? So what? I have now made three times my thing. If you made three times your thing, you can move up three spaces on the, uh, on the stock market track. Now, and I, your I think, stock will then be worth $90. Exactly. And the more, the more your stock is worth at the end of the game, remember you trade in your stock certificates for cash. Right. So you're golden. If you have made double, you move up twice. If you've made an equal amount or less, then uh, you just stay where you are. And uh, doing that, fulfill, paying off dividends, which, by the way, you don't have to pay off dividends. You can say, as the president of the company, all that cash is going to stay in the company coffers That's right. to spend on stuff in the next round. But if you do pay off dividends, you also move up on the acclaim track, right. on so the that, fame track. That's a decision you have to make every round, which is, are you going to pay out dividends or are you going to keep all the money for your company and not pay out dividends? But the penalty for that is that you move backwards on the stock track. I have not found that it's beneficial at all in this game to withhold. Um, maybe in the last round to prevent some people getting some money. Uh, but in the most part, you, I've never had a real company cash problem withholding might be something that will give you personal satisfaction if you're that type <laughs> of person <laughs> sure uh so after that after you have paid out all your things then you do a little cleanup on the board and you start the next round and you do that five times and that's the whole game um so let's get into uh our thoughts on it and some strategy talk um now there are 10 companies in the base game 
There is an expansion as well, which I own, but we have not gotten to the table because we keep teaching new people. The only difference in the expansion, which is called uh, Burden of Destiny, is that it comes with, I believe, five more companies, and these companies are a lot more complicated than the other ones, um, but also a lot more fun if you know the game. So they have some very interesting rule-breaking powers, things like some companies don't need any workers to run. Some companies run without workers at all. Some the Carl Chapek robot companies. Yes. Yes. Some companies don't need good, things like that. The companies start breaking rules and get complicated, but they get really fun. So you start the game with one company, and in any game, all the companies are available. They all sit there, and you can look at them anytime and decide you know, if you want to buy one or if you want to start one. And at any turn, during a stock phase, you can only buy new companies or new stocks during the stock round at the beginning. Um, you could start a new company, as long as you can afford three stocks of that company. And you can set the par somewhere between you know 25 and 60 or whatever it is um you then can start a new company why would you want to own more companies well because it's more stock that can start going up right and because if what you always want to do is you want to look at your personal money and you want to say how do i turn this personal money into the most money i can personal money sitting next to you has no purpose it's not doing anything you never want to have $100 cash just sitting on the table next to you that you own. You want it always out there, invested in things that are going to make more money. And very rarely in this game do things lose money. I've, I, I, it's not something we've seen in the game. We still haven't explored it a lot, but we've probably played it five to ten times now. Uh, again, what's interesting about the game, uh, and this is something that Tom pointed out, uh, uh, is that you don't necessarily want to buy stock in the most successful companies because it's going to be really expensive stock, so it's not going to appreciate right. that much you may, more. You may spend 200 to make 250 right? But what but you want you, is the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, like a jewel, a company that you start on, on your own, or maybe you identify a company that's right now undervalued that can is really set up to do well. Right. in the next turn or the next couple. So of why turns. would you not just want to always start a new company when you can? Well, a couple of reasons. There is market scarcity and the depression is looming. Yes, they actually have the depression as something that happens in the game. At a certain point, usually in the end of the third round or even the fourth round, all the cards will run out. Um, and printed on the board beneath the cards are much worse spots with less spaces for goods and less bonuses and, or just, just worse spots. That's the depression. That's how the game is playing with, uh, by the end, you know, you've reached the 1920s, 1930s, the depression sit in, there's less people wanting to buy your stuff, and there is a lot more fighting, and companies might get in trouble and die during this time. So it is a really interesting decision space of, I can buy a company, but, oh, this company also needs blue and brown cubes. My other company needs blue and brown cubes. Am I going to be competing with myself? Or maybe that's good. I want to make sure I own all the companies with blue and brown cubes, because if, if Dimitri gets a company with blue and brown, and I'm fighting with blue and brown, He's going to murder me in order to make sure I don't get those blue and browns. Yeah, He's this gonna is buy called all of zagging them. versus when everybody else is zigging. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that makes this game so excited is that it's so clear with the color of the cubes yeah. where everybody's going. So if you want to keep track of who needs what mm -hmm. and do the other things so you don't compete with them or possibly go after them directly so you can cut them off, it's a it's a decision that you can make based on the color. Right. Uh, it's something you can like quickly observe. And like I said, there's four different types of companies, and so pig companies only sell to the pig market. So if you have a pig company, do you want to be in competition with yourself in the pig market, or do you know, or would you rather that as opposed to have somebody else fighting with you? So there's really interesting decisions about starting companies. Um, it's 
almost always a good idea if you can start a company if you're confident that you can run it. Now, this gets to one of my issues with the game because towards the end of the game, and I've noticed this, and I've, I've seen people talk about this online as well, but I've noticed it in games that I've played, the more companies that are in the game, the longer the game is going to go. And it can actually really slow down when there's a lot of companies in the game. Of course, because so, every company takes a turn. Every company takes a turn, and, right. And, and like if the person with three companies is going to think about everything. Yep. Yeah. So everybody at some point in every game will own two companies, right? You're not playing well if you don't, if you, if you always want to have your first company, make it run well while always thinking about what's my second company. Now, at some point you'll start thinking about your third company, but you also have to start thinking of the depression. Well, you have to start thinking of depression, but you also have to start thinking, do you want everyone at the table to hate you? When your turn takes an hour, <laughs> when you have three companies to run and do you, and, and you're looking at the clock and you have to think to yourself, do I need that third company to win or do I not? And because it's going to add 30 minutes to the game to buy another company right now. Um, and then if everybody else said, if you buy a third company, then everybody else needs a third company. And now the game's nine hours long. And I think it can really slog down the last age or two. Um, and it, it's a little problematic. Now, if this was a computer program and we were all playing at computers, it wouldn't matter because it would run the things instantly, but we have to do all this math. We have to go 200 divided by 10. Jake gets 20. You have to do that for every company. Count the chips. Count the, yep. It's just time consuming. And by the way, the game comes with paper money. I threw it in the trash. I use poker chips. It's an 18xx game. Not Monopoly. Right. So, it, but you know, even counting chips, that takes more, takes time. I mean, it would be ludicrous with paper money, but uh, it, it's very time consuming. So to me, that's the thing. And I think the better we get at this game, the more we're going to realize that the third company can really be very important in terms of who gets it first. And uh, that could really be the difference in terms of winning and having a lot of money on your, uh, on your personal supply, but it can really drag the game out. And I could imagine playing a high level game of this that makes me never really want to play it again because it just took so long. And those last round or two was just really just milking out just a dollar here, $2 there. And it's just time consuming. Conversely, I'm waiting for Paul to win this game without running a single company, but just simply investing in other people's companies. Yeah, the problem with that is that you'll, everyone else will have more stock than you. I mean, uh, for the most part. I mean, I, I, the president share, I mean, yeah, you could really focus on the preferred shares. I see what you're saying. You can focus on the preferred shares. But if people have more president shares than you, you're going to lose. So I, I don't know. It, it could be tricky. Um, but that, it, I think it's doable. I think it's doable, but I think it is less doable than in an 18xx because I think this is a game where um, you, that would be cool if you could tank other people's companies or if you could really screw with other people's companies. But remember, if you don't own any companies, um, I don't think you... Well, you have to always own one company. You, you have to start the game by starting one. Uh, but if you don't own a second, I don't know, it gets tricky. You could really start messing with what people can get. But th so this is one of my other concerns with the game. Not a concern, really, but a, a thing that I was sort of hoping there'd be more of. There's really not many stock shenanigans in this game. So what is stock shenanigans? Well, that's, that's a big, fun element of 18xx, wherein you are purposefully buying people's stocks to tank them. You are doing hostile takeovers. You're doing all these silly, tricky things that keep people keep everyone on their toes. And, and you know, there's certain things where in 18xx, where if you own 30% of a company, you have to be terrified at all times because somebody could, could on, just sell all and now stick you with a company with a bunch of dead trains that can't work. And now you're just, you know, people can hand you, you know, ticking time bombs. You can't really do that in this game. The most you can really hurt somebody is by buying their stock and selling it. But by buying their stock, you've given them a ton of cash 
that they can use to make their stock given better. Given the company. If given the cash. company, right. So if I buy a stock, that, that's money that, that you've lost from your personal supply, and now my company has it. Now, you know, you can sell your stock, of course, and get the money back from the bank, but I don't know if you've hurt me too much. You def- if everybody does it to you, it can. Like I, I definitely remember I played a game where I think Trey bought a bunch of stock on me and then dumped it, and it definitely hurt. But there are ways out of it because there's a few worker placement spots where you can actually raise your appeal by sending your, not raise your appeal, raise your stock prices by sending your company there and getting money out of your treasury and turning it into uh, uh, money that you're giving to the stock market holders and stuff. So, which can then raise your dividends and raise your stock value. Um, so I, I don't know. There, I, I sort of, it's funny to say, but I sort of wish there was a little more take that and a little, or a little more fear of, like it's not, in any 18xx game, you have to be worried about owning 60% of a company or 50% of a company. Because now, if this doesn't run well, they're going to dump it on you and they're going to dump a bad company on you. Um, you don't really have to worry about that in this game. I think it's, I've never seen a company end up lower than it started. Never in this game. It's always, it's always going to be good to buy a stock. It's always, unless it's the last round of the game, it's always better to buy. It's, it is, it's not going to go down. By the end of the game, it's going to go up. This is a much friendlier game than any 18xx I played. That's much friendlier mm-hmm. than Tokyo Metro, for example, mm-hmm. with, that has a much more interesting mechanic of of hurting other people's yep. uh, uh, train values. Um, it's uh, it, for me, it's something I actually prefer. Uh, I'm uh, a paranoid person naturally, so uh, I'm afraid of being attacked. Uh, this is a friendlier environment. Yeah. This is a game where you go uh, like synergy versus diversification rather than who's going to shoot me in the back. Yeah. Um, so we get into our final thoughts about it. Do you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, Tell us what you think. So first of all, the art is really good. Uh, The um, uh, cards are very easy, very clear to see what you're playing with. It's very clear to see uh, who else is playing with similar or needs similar uh, goods uh, or is going to be competing with you in the market. Uh, So um, you very quickly get to the heart of the game which is how you run companies, how you pay dividends, how you buy and sell stocks. Uh, And if you're interested in that mechanism, then this is either a really good starter game that will get you into the 18xx universe gently by introducing you to uh, the market mechanisms without having you need to lay track and and, yeah. and, 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 and and do the railroad stuff. Or it may actually be the ideal version of 18xx for you. So you don't have to worry that if you put your very first piece of track wrong, you've lost the entire game. Yeah, the, I, I think what you're saying is, is correct. I think if you love 18xx, I think you probably won't love this. If you only love 18, if 18xx is your jam, I think you'll find this boring. If you love euros, I think you will like this game a lot. If you love heavy euros and worker placement, I think, and you've never played an 18xx, I think this game will blow your freaking mind. I think you will love it and think it's wildly innovative and insanely cool and like a game you've never played before and a wonderful addition to your euro collection. If you have played a lot of 18xx and a lot of euros, 
I think you will probably really like this. I think you will look at this and go, oh, they took a, real, a lot of really cool parts of 18xx games and a lot of really cool parts of worker placement and Euro games, and they sort of did this really cool combination of them that uh, feels yeah. really original. It's a chimera, uh, but it doesn't feel like a mongrel. Uh, it, all the parts really do fit together. Yeah. Uh, 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 e- even though they come from disparate sources and, and different philosophies of gaming, yeah. they come together into an interesting, fulfilling, rewarding, friendly worker placement game with a really interesting layering of market on top of it. Yeah. I, I, I do think, though, that if you are a, a diehard 18xx player, this will feel like a meal that ends at the appetizer for you. And I think you will be left hungry. And if you like tapas, mm-hmm. and you like those uh, <laughs> you, you know, prefixes where you yeah. have 20 appetizers and you leave. Sure. So what are my thoughts on this? I, I, I really love it. I'm excited to play it right now. I want to keep playing it. I do have reservations. So my reservations being... I wonder if at a certain point it will feel a little samey. Um, I think while the expansion can help it, I think the overall uh, sort of loop of the game can feel a little samey after a while and not necessarily wildly different. Even though the companies can feel different and the starting positions can feel different, I think there are not too many differences in, in how you open companies and par them. Of course, there are, there's the randomness of cubes coming out, which can be frustrating to a certain extent. Um, and there are uh, there are, uh, capital markers, I forget what they're called, these little extra bonuses you can get, these little powers that you can get every round. Um, there's enough variability, but I still feel that the overall loop of the game, buying stocks, buying cubes, worker placement, and then running your companies even in my five or six plays of this has already started to feel a little samey and not a huge difference depending on any of those variable, variable factors I just stated. The companies, the order the goods come out, all the little things. It doesn't necessarily feel different every time in the way that Great Western Trail or Teo Tawakian or some of these games that every time I sit down, the loop, while exciting, feels very different. This, I don't know how different it feels. And my biggest concern is I think the better we get at this game, the longer it's going to go. And I think there will be some fatigue with that. Uh, as a classical music critic, uh, whose name I forget, I think Svoboda once said, you can't have the Ninth Symphony every day. Yeah. You can't play Tetuakan every day. Sure. Uh, alas. Uh, and this is nice. I, I will read one line from the poem. Come and show me another city with lifted head singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning. <laughs> I mean, this is a beautiful production. I mean, the art is incredible. Um, and on the side of the box, it says stormy, husky, brawling. I mean, there, there's, there's a, a playfulness and an, a, 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 you know, a, an artistry at work here that you don't see in a lot of board games. There's obviously a labor of love. Um, Raymond Chandler III has done you know, a wonderful job here. And it, it feels like a very, very exciting entry into the board game hobby for this designer and, and sort of like a, a pretty huge... Uh, you know, first work. I mean, this this feels like you know, a, you know, a huge director coming out in his first movie, being you know, winning can or something. And it's just like, it, well, I, this is somebody to keep an eye out on. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to his 
LA private investigator <laughs> game. Exactly. Um, so look, I like it a lot. I have a few reservations. I'm uh, at this point, I'd say it's my second favorite new game I've learned this year, right after Barrage. But it's it's exciting. And if if somebody said I want to play it right now, I'm I'm like super into it and down to try it, and very excited for the expansion. Um, you can you can get City of Big Shoulders if you're interested in it through Parallel Games website. Um, I think it will be trickling out into your FLGSs and online stores soon. But right now, I think Parallel Games is your best place to uh, buy it straight up. Um, and I think they're a really interesting and cool company and worth supporting. Um, that is our review of City of the Big Shoulders from Parallel Games. Dimitri is now going to take us into the mind of Dimitri. <laughs> now, Tell us what we're going to be talking about in our debate section. Is this a debate we're going to be having, Dimitri? It's kind of a debate. Mm. Um, it, it's all about uh, games versus simulations, setup versus payoff, uh, and where you place your emphasis and, and where you place your importance and what that means. And now turn the floor over to Dimitri and his board game TED Talk. Thank you so much. Remember that it's been over three months since I've done one of these podcasts. Uh, so this took me the su whole summer. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was in May, early May. So uh, basically, I want to start by asking you, Matt, to consider a game as an experience where learning the rules is the setup uh, and playing Dimitri, the game. I will. I is, will do this. Thank you. Learning the rules is the setup and pay playing the game is the payoff. Learning the rules okay. setup, playing again the payoff. I'm with you so far. And setup and payoff are storytelling tools. They are parts of stories. Hold on. Still with you. Go ahead. Okay. So to illustrate what I mean by setup and payoff being arbitrary or robust, I'm going to use song lyrics. Uh, and... Uh, one of the things that song lyricists, professional song lyricists know is yeah. that if you have a pair of rhyming words, the word that comes last has to be robust. And the word that comes first has to be, can be arbitrary. So for example, there is a country song that was pretty popular this summer oh God, called- Please let him quote Lil Nas X. It's actually some of it. Some of it meaning life experience and it goes like this. Some of it you learn the hard way. Some of it you get from a page. Some of it comes from heartbreak. Most of it comes with age. And, and sure. Is that Garth Brooks? Uh, you know, I forget who wrote it. You don't um, even know who wrote the country song? I forget who wrote the country song. I very apologize. It's not Garth Brooks. You got to know when to hold them. Uh, Garth Brooks actually doesn't write okay. so much. He sing, people send them songs like... We want people to send us songs Please, for, for the podcast. Okay, so uh, if you look at some of it you get from a page, most of it comes with age. If you look at that rhyme, uh, it's a perfect rhyme, uh, but most of it comes with age. Eric it's, Church. Oh, there you go. Wait, yes. Are you just Googling like random song lyrics? Oh, no, 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 no. This, this is an illustration that perfectly but shows. how did you what, find it? How'd you just find a random country song lyric? I want the behind the I scenes. I listen to country songs. I get these ideas from somewhere. So. Okay. Eric Church. I listen some to of it. I listen to country. So most of it comes with age is something I call robust. It's idiomatic. You know instantly what most of it comes with age means. Some of it you get from a page is 
kind of arbitrary. Uh, what uh, Eric Church really wants to say is some of it you get from books. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody asks me, Dmitry, where did you learn that whales are mammals? I'm not going to say I got it from a page. I got it out of a book. And maybe an earlier version of the lyric said some of it comes from books, most of it comes when you've lost your looks. I don't know. But obviously, Church wanted to end the rhyme with most of it comes with age. He wanted to... So excited to see how this relates to board games. (laughs) End robustly. Okay. Uh, And he started arbitrarily. Okay. Here's another example. Ira Gershwin. Mm. Uh, I've can, heard of him, yeah, not can, Eric Church. Can, can you sing it for me? It's, uh, I'll sing anything you want. Sure. I'm just a little lamb that's lost in the wood, or oh, how I could always be good. I don't know the song. Who, I don't know the melody. Someone who'll watch over me. I don't think that melody is springing to mind right now. I'm just a little lamb that's lost in the wood. And that's how you get Dimitri. Oh, how I could always be good to one who'll watch over me. Sorry. Still, no, no, it's wonderful. I'm just... I'm, Apologies. I'm just... I'm waiting so, for you to stick the landing here. Ira Gershwin is a genius, but okay. he's pulling a fast one here uh, because, oh, how I could always be good. That's robust. That's okay. idiomatic. That's colloquial. But you don't get lost in the wood. You get lost in the woods. Right. Does a bear poop in the wood? No. Never. A bear poops in the woods. So, again, you want to land, you want to finish as a professional songwriter. You want to finish with the robust. You you start with the arbitrary. Okay. Right? I don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) We're talking about setup and payoff. Okay, I got I'm with you. Okay. (laughs) We're we're talking about rules and play. Okay. But uh, I'm going to get there in stages. I love it. So I believe in you. I'm on this journey. I don't know where the car is going. There's a book by Blake Crouch that uh, came out this year called Recursion. Uh, and uh, Blake Crouch is a thriller writer. He wrote Wandering Pines. Recursion is his latest work. It's quite good. Uh, and in, in the afterword, Blake Crouch says, like, this is my magnum opus. Uh, it's a terrific book. It has some really cool ideas. And one of the reasons I recommend it and I like it uh, is that it goes several plateaus. It scales several plateaus beyond where you expect it to lead. And there's some wonderful idea, concept, payoffs at the end. But Blake Crouch is still very much a thriller writer. So at the beginning of the book, there's a little section that goes, well, you know, to get the certain brain effect, uh, the levels of the pineal gland hormones have to reach at least 100 uh, uh, milligrams per deciliter. You know that this is arbitrary. This is not a robust number. Mm. It's an arbitrary number. And the reason it's in the early section of the book, it's the setup for the payoff later that's going to be robust where there's going to be a ticking down time clock and 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 the person is going to be waiting can i hit the magical number 140 or else the world will end you right. know that that's why it's there you're not expecting it to be meaningful you're not expecting it to be robust versus michael crichton uh who is in my opinion a science fiction writer writing thrillers uh and in um jurassic park the novel there's a little bit 
very early in the book where he says that the geneticists making the dinos uh, filled in gaps in dinosaur DNA with amphibian DNA. Frogs, yeah. Yeah, and you go, oh, this is something the genetic geneticists might, might actually do it's something it's believable they, it's believable it's robust and then later in the book you find out well you know those bits of amphibian dna are what make dinosaurs blind to you if you stand still because frogs go after flies they frogs can only see movement they, also what makes them able to self-replicate Really? Yeah, that was the that, that was the mistake they made was that the frog genes those the there's types. Oh, of that's frogs right. That, that's amphibians. Yes. Right, yeah, can, uh, not amphibians. Uh, can reproduce on yes, their own. Yes. Uh, but in 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 Jurassic Park, you have a setup that's robust, right? Uh, because it's something geneticists actually do, and a payoff that's robust, okay. because it has all these ramifications uh, that are also very meaningful. Okay. Uh, another example of that is Foundation by Isaac Asimov, where you have a very robust setup, where you have psychohistorians, people who understand history and human psychology so well, they can predict future events and how to game them and how get to get around them. And that's a very robust, interesting setup mm -hmm. in 19, late 1940s when you're just defeated Hitler and are learning about Freud's theory of human psychology, mm -hmm. sure. but also in foundation, because Isaac Asimov is a science fiction writer, um, you have payoffs that are robust, where for three books uh, and like eight novellas, you keep seeing surprising new ways in which psychohistory actually triumphs do you in think, the battles between planets. Do you think Isaac Asimov's a genius? Yes, I do. What about Eric Crouch? Do you think Eric, Eric Crouch is a genius? Uh, Eric Church, sorry, Eric Church. Uh, Eric Church uh, <laughs> is not as good as Ida Gershwin, but no one is What about is Blake good. Crouch? I just want to, this is, who Dimitri thinks is a genius? I, I will reserve my opinion of like, on Blake Crouch. He, he wrote a, a genius book, but again, for me, we'll he's see. a thriller writer writing science fiction rather than the science Jury's fiction. Out. Jury's in Jury. on Eric Church, though. Not a genius. Sorry, Eric. Uh, again, not as good as Ida Gershwin. Try again next life. No, 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 no. I'm sure maybe with the no, next. No. Maybe you have the next. cast your judgment on Eric I, I, Church. I'm not. Look, look I, li Shh, I, not listen, I listen to the song. I mean, is that something? Yeah, well, it's, a not, it's not genius, the song. Yeah. Okay. But in general, if you are a, prof a professional writer, if you're a professional thriller writer and you have an arbitrary component and Robust. Uh, a robust component, put the arbitrary first. Right. This is what Uwe Rosenberg does. Ah, uh, here we with are. With his games, We're right? In board games now. Right. I know this stuff. Look, look. Because rules are the setup. Play yeah. is the payoff. Okay. Rosenberg's whole thing is how do I make the gameplay robust? Mm. How do I make it satisfying? How do I make sure that there are meaningful decisions, each one of which... Every decision that you make is going to lead to someone being the winner because of those decisions, not because of some arbitrary quality, not because of randomness, not because someone sneezed, but because they made the best decisions, right? right? So to do that, the rules, it's okay for the rules to be a little arbitrary. Like Agricola 
is genius, right? Mm, but, okay, hold on. We're adding Agricola to the list of genius. Yeah, things. but the rules in Agricola don't have much to do with farming. I, I mean, it's arbitrary to say that every time you have a family member, you have to add a room to the house. Mm-hmm. It's arbitrary arbitrarily to say that all of your family members are going to survive. Yeah, it's not it's, a simulation, sure. It's not a simulation. You, bl- you bring up simulation. Hey. What is a simulation? A simulation is the flip of games. In a simulation, the rules are robust. In a simulation, the rules have to reflect reality. The, every rule has to be at the level of geneticists are using amphibian to d- DNA to fill in the gaps in the dinosaur DNA. Mm-hmm. There can't be a rule about pineal gland hormone has to <laughs> reach sure. the level of 140. That's Uber Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. In a simulation, the robustness comes first. Right. Uh, and then the gameplay, well, you don't go into a simulation expecting that every decision that you make is going to be meaningful. You don't go into a simulation expecting that there's only going to be one winner. You go into simulation not for entertainment or for the experience of playing it, but for the training. Because the robust rules give you reality, and in reality they're often not clear well, winners. Or, or a simulation can often be a way to experience a reality that you would never have access to. That's right. Training. Training. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Vitalia Lacerda is very much on the simulation side of the spectrum mm. uh, because the, the rules, for example, for gallerist actually have a, much more to do with what it's like to run a gallery, an art gallery, than the rules of uh, Agricola less have to do. Less abstracted, you're saying. Yes, and they're also less calibrated. And, and, and by saying that Uwe Rosenberg's rules are arbitrary, I don't mean that they're rigged. It, it's not like they're trying to make one of the people win or win unfairly. They're calibrated to make sure that there is a winner. And one of the frustrations that Tom expressed with uh, Lacerda, with Gallery specifically, is that he doesn't really know, he doesn't really like how the game like really plays. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel like all of his decisions are meaningful. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel he can build a, an engine. That's because Lacerda, who is uh, uh, an aficionado, he is a true amateur rather than a professional game designer Yes, uh, or a professional thriller writer. As I writer. stated in my That's winning. right, exactly. Victory or a, over Tom. Or a professional uh, li- uh, song lyricist uh, yeah. like Church or, 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 or Gershwin. Church, uh, Gershwin's the genius, Church is not. Yes, he, what Lacerda does is he makes the rules robust. Uh, and there's a, a little bit of another level to this because uh, I, I called uh, Crouch a thriller writer writing science fiction. There is a genre of writing where the setup is robust and the payoff can be arbitrary. It, it's literature. In literature, amazing setup. You're a prince of Denmark and your dad's ghost just told him that your uncle murdered him. Fantastic mm-hmm. setup. What's the payoff? Almost everybody dies. Uh, 
Spoilers. Napoleon invades Russia, and there's the War of 1812, and people love each other and hate each other and go to war and have to deal with the consequences. Amazing setup. What's the payoff? Most, almost everyone dies. Uh, death is what happens uh, at the end of a lot of great literary works. It's not a surprise. Uh, because the the ending of a lot of literature is arbitrary. Because, again, it's the setup that's robust. The setup is where it's important. Because literature is like a simulation rather than a game. A thriller is like a game. In a thriller, it's the play that's supposed to be the entertainment. Mm -hmm. In a work of literature, it's like... Uh, training for life. Right. So the ending is going to be arbitrary. Uh, usually death, or like Lady Bracknell says in uh, 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 The Importance of uh, Being Earnest, uh, the, ed, the, the good end happily and the bad unhappily, that's what literature means. Uh, nobody's going to tell you, Dante's Inferno is fantastic, but wait until you get to the payoff in Paradiso. Mm -hmm. No, because Paradiso, eh, who cares? In literature, it's the setup that's robust. Hmm. Okay, now, remember how I said that in a lot of science fiction, the setup is robust and the payoff is robust, like in yep. Michael Crichton and in Asimov? Geniuses, both okay, geniuses. Sure. Uh, what do we call it? What do we call a mathematical thing? Because games are ultimately math, right? Games are economic ways of describing reality. Simulations are economic, mathematical ways of describing reality. What do we call something where the setup and the payoff in describing reality is robust and you have math that gets you from setup to payoff? I don't know. Sellers of Catan. Yeah. <laughs> it's called theory. Okay. Uh, and when you have a robust setup and a robust payoff, that's like, that's theory. That's scientific theory. Uh, and there are economic theories that are supposed to work like that. There's certainly physics theories that absolutely work like it's that. A strong premise and a strong payoff. A strong premise, robust premise, robust payoff, where nothing is arbitrary, nothing is calibrated. That's actual honest-to-goodness theory. Uh, and the way that games are entertainment and simulations are training, theories are investigation. Right. Uh, because a theory can be proven to be false or sure. proven to be true. Can't be proven. Can only be disproven. Uh, uh, but it is when both ends are robust. And I'll give you an example. So what is the one rule, one constraint uh, in, in the special theory of relativity, Einstein's? Do you, do you remember what the one it is? constraint? Yeah, the one rule that Einstein starts out with, the robust single rule in, in the rule book. Um, I don't know. Yeah, tell it, me. It, it's the robust uh, observation yeah. that the speed of light is constant. Okay. Uh, no matter what speed the observer is actually traveling right. at. Sure. Right? And from that one rule, using math, Einstein derives all sorts of robust conclusions, robust payoffs equals MC squared, GPS, black holes, right. all of that is using math from that one robust uh, rule that 
is confirmed endlessly through all these observations. Right. Uh, here's another example of a very famous theory, theory where there are starts off with five rules, four of which are robust and one of which is arbitrary, and, and that's geometry. Mm-hmm. Euclid started out with five axioms, like, like through any two points, you can only draw a single line, blah, blah, blah. Um, and from that, he derived all of 10th grade math, right? Okay. Uh, but the fifth of these uh, was kind of arbitrary, and Euclid even knew that was kind of arbitrary. The fifth of them is very famous. It's if you have a point outside a line, through that point, you can only draw one parallel line to that original line, right? Okay. And that's a little arbitrary. And in fact, if you take a different arbitrary version of that axiom, if you say that you cannot draw a single parallel line through that point, or if you go hog wild in the other direction, you can say you can draw infinitely many parallel lines through that point, you wind up with non-Euclidean geometry. In the first instance, it's, you get spherical geometry. In, in the second instance, you get infinitely curved out geometry. But the thing is, you get legitimate geometries. When you take four robust rules and get a fifth arbitrary rule, and by changing it, you can still get useful mathematics. Uh, and uh, I'm going to close out this talk by pointing out that you can actually get two theory from games. Uh, there's something called genetic algorithms, where you, you, you basically take a, a, a bunch of arbitrary rules, arbitrary mathematical constraints, uh, and like thousands of groups of them, uh, and, and then you run them. And then you get results, and you see which results are the most robust. And then you kill off the 90% of the less robust results. You you uh, uh, keep the 10% of the robust results. Then you recombine the rules, and you run it again and again and again until you get an algorithm purely by chance through evolutionary recombination that is going to give you the most robust result. So you have robust rules, you have a robust result, and voila. And a lot of mathematical problems are actually solved that way in computers. Uh, the Santa Fe Institute of Complexity gets a lot of money from the Department of Defense to do exactly this. And watch out for economics. Because economists like to say, we use models. We start out with certain rules or certain constraints, and through pure math, we get a, a robust payoff. Careful. They're often pulling a fast one. Uh, are they doing a game where they're finally calibrating the rules to get a specific result? Yeah, free market, fantastic. Uh, low interest rates, fantastic. Have they calibrated the rules? Are they running a simulation? Are they having a theory? The economic world model, that concept can apply to a game or a simulation or a theory. It's very fluid. Be very careful when you listen to economists for that reason because are they doing this for entertainment 
are they doing this uh, for training or are they actually investigating the way the world works? So, uh, where, so this is, since this is a debate, can I give my side of the debate? Sure, of course. Please. I think Eric Church is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Which lyric is better? Oh, jeez. Eric Church. I feel like Eric Some Church got done wrong Some here. of it comes from the page. Most of it comes with age. Or <laughs> some of it comes from books. Most when you've lost your looks. All right. So, in an attempt to get get a little ring, a little more board gaming information out of this, where where in your estimation does the the perfect balance of simulate of of uh, of, uh, of the setup and the payoff take place in board games for you? And can you give me an example of a game that you feel does it the way not not necessarily perfectly, but perfect for you? Well, it, it's an, I, I think there are two genres. I, I think there are different genres, uh, and and I, I think. What I just said explains why you love, you and I love Lacerda, mm-hmm. and, and Tom and Trey love Rosenberg, mm-hmm. uh, because we all love both of them. But yes, some sh- more than sh- others. Sure, we we prefer Lacerda. Lacerda. We we want somebody who's going to err on the side of robust rules, mm. uh, and we are okay with gameplay being a simulation where not every decision you make is going to be equally meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you play a perfect game where every decision you make is meaningful, you may not win mm-hmm. simply because that's not the priority uh, right. of, of the game designers. There's, there's more storytelling taking place. It's more storytelling. And, and, and I think, again, even though both of us are storytellers and this is where we spent a lot of our time, even when we go to games, we're not as interested in the mechanisms and in the mathematics uh, of the play as we are in actually learning, oh, this is kind of what it's like to be a fast food person. This is kind of... We're LARPing it. Yes. Um, and, and, and actually, you bring up LARPing. Uh, LARPs are an excellent example of like the foam swords what are those larps called buffer buffer larps are very much ubi rosenberg buffer larps are about having arbitrary rules mm-hmm. it's all it's arbitrary rules right the setup is arbitrary are we going to roll dice are we gonna, how are we going to resolve it in order to have fun and interesting play right. where you can make decisions and you can have a clear winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of LARPs that um, Tom and Trey do uh, at uh, Gen Con yep. or have done at Gen Con are more uh, Lacerda-ish where they want to make sure that the rules are robust, mm. the setup is robust because the setup is really the concept of a TV show or, or some kind of intellectual property they're following like Game mm-hmm. of Thrones or Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and, and, and then maybe the gameplay is much more fluid. Right. And in um, what Trey does in, in, uh, at, at the Reagan Library, for example, uh, in, in the Situation Room, is through a LARP trying to balance it, trying to make sure that the rules are robust but just arbitrary, just calibrated enough so, so that the play can actually run smoothly. Uh, so if you were to ask me, where have I personally seen 
that balance perfected, mm-hmm. it, it's by trade mm. uh, at that LARP. Right. And, and every board game that I've seen uh, is, it, it falls on one end or the other. Most of them fall on, on, on the, robust, uh, right. the robust gameplay arbitrary rules. Right. Uh, most of them are like Rosenberg. You know, and it's fun, but it can also, is it really difficult, are underwater cities a really different experience right. from, uh, from a train game? Uh, do displaying underwater cities teach me something about, no, no. no. Other but, than that kelp is very important. Sure, but I, <laughs> and it is so important. It's where we get a lot of our oxygen, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but uh, I prefer, and you prefer, games with more robust rules like Terraforming Mars. What do you think City of the Big Shoulders is? Ultimately, uh, so genetically, I can answer it's definitely uh, a robust rules game. Yeah. Because it's made up of rules that work in Twa that work in, um, in um, Le Havre, mm-hmm. that work in 18XX, that work in Agricola. And the joy of playing the game is, yeah, this is applied to an historical situation. But you can tell that it's, the robustness comes from the rules. Right. It, it's, it's not like uh, Raymond Chandler III uh, said, oh, well, Quaker Oats actually used this strategy. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he did, but that wasn't his primary concern. I, I, I think I can conclude that I can't read his mind, but playing the game, looking at the game, I think this falls into the Uber Rosenberg um, uh, camp. And by the way, most games fall into Uber Rosenberg's camp. Because remember, I started out this discussion by saying that a professional lyric writer is going to put the robust rhyme last and the arbitrary first. And a a professional um, uh, thriller writer is going to put the arbitrary uh, rule first uh, and the robust payoff last. Right. Uh, It's the amateur who writes literature. It's the amateur like Lacerda who is going to make a simulation. Yeah. Uh, and it's the genius like Einstein or Euclid who's going to make a theory or Asimov or Crichton. Uh, church. W- or, <laughs> or church. Well, well, again, you don't get things from the page. Uh, I'm getting this from my, the notes on my phone. But what actually, what you want, what everybody wants, right, is a robust payoff and a robust setup. What everybody wants is a theory. What everybody wants is the truth, right? Right. When you can, ge- when, when you can get the poetic or the game thing equivalent of like let's have a rule book with one rule uh and and then it plays magnificently that would be the game equivalent of the theory theory. of einstein's theory of relativity of course okay and of course you need math right you know i hope this makes sense i think it does and i am excited for people to hear it and i love your brain and i love the wonderful creature that you are and for presenting us this uh, very original thing that only you could bring. 
I also brought a list of 30 games that only I remember how to play, and I'm going to discuss them for three hours right now. Yeah. Uh, let's make a cut. Let's go. Okay, we're back, <laughs> Matt. Uh, thank you, Dimitri. Let us quickly jump into the board game Smollier. It has a song. It goes like this. Sometimes a player just got to know which game should stay, which game should go, which to play with mama, madame, abu. You got to tell me, monsieur, just what to do. Want to make an impression, but I can't get far. As my 50th player of Agricola, a million games. Show me the way to the master, the game Somalier. Quickly, before we get into our emails, uh, this is an official uh, request for more board game sommelier emails and questions. Send me all of your board game sommelier questions. You can go to gamebrainpod.com and go into the contact section there and you will be able to email me directly from there or you can do it through your own browser or your own email uh, program, sorry, at matthew at gamebrainpod.com. We promise to try to do these more often. We have been a bit lax on it because our episodes have been going a little long, but we've we've reined in our episodes a bit and we will be getting to Board Game Sommelier every week. So please send me your questions requesting exactly what games you can have for you and allow the Board Game Sommelier to serve your needs. Let us begin. Michael M., going on a long-term international trip soon, what are the most flyable games for someone who likes to pack light or the best games to learn with a regular 52 deck before I go? Thanks, homies. Uh, in terms of the 52 deck, I would recommend that you check out Shut Up and Sit Down. They've been doing this great series lately where they introduce you to great games that can be played with any deck of cards. Um, and I think it is a wonderful and valuable thing. And I actually learned a bunch of card games I had never even heard of before. So check out Shut Up and Sit Down's YouTube channel or through their website. And they check out the whole series they have on awesome card games. I want to add teach you to that that can be played with a regular deck plus four cards. Sure. Um, my favorite solo game to travel with would be Renegade. Uh, Ricky Royal, that we had on the podcast a little while back, designed a wonderful game that is Netrunner meets this awesome Mage Knight sort of deck building moving around on tiles with this cool cyberpunk theme. It's very small box. You can actually take it out of the box and throw it in a little baggie and take the whole game with you. Um, but the amount of space it takes up in a bag comparable to the amount of gameplay and variability it gives you is massive. So check out Renegade. Uh, games that you can like throw literally in your pocket or in a backpack and bring with you. Love Letter. I always you can always throw that in your bag and travel if you want to be playing with other people. The mind, the which mind, is a game we also very mentioned. easy. And if you have, you know, you can take this out of the box and probably fit it in one Ziploc bag as well as Watergate. Um, you know, the you know, the board takes up a little space, but you can fold it up and throw it in your bag. Um, I think Watergate is a wonderful two player game that you could take pretty much anywhere with you on international travel. Uh, next question. They may not let you back into the U.S. That is correct. Uh, Rob Blick, my friends and I love Great Western Trail, but after playing it the last six game nights, we got the expansion three game nights ago, we are ready for something else. We like Power Grid, and we're thinking about trying Brass. We do not play 18xx games or anything super heavy, since we usually only play once a month, twice if we are lucky. So we try to avoid games with tricky, subtle rules. With that in mind, which version of Brass do you suggest, or is there something else you would recommend? The second one, definitely. Yes. Of the two versions of Brass that are out right now, I prefer Brass Birmingham, but I honestly believe you cannot go wrong with either one of them. Brass Birmingham is actually a little bit more complicated, but also potentially a little more forgiving. I might be wrong on that. I have to play both. I've only been playing Brass recently. I haven't played Lancashire since they came out. It's um, an interesting example of when you add two or three rules, the whole thing kind of makes more sense, at least yeah. in my mind. I also prefer the artwork. 
But I'm going to go ahead and not recommend either Brass for you if you are saying you don't want super heavy games because you only meet once a month or so. Brass is a super heavy game that will only reward multiple plays. Um, your first few games of it, you will be fumbling, trying to even figure out what to do. Brass is super heavy. Brass is not a simple game. And uh, I think if you're looking for something that you can really sink your teeth into in one play or so, I would not. I would steer you away from that and instead steer you towards games that I would put in the same category as Great Western Trail, which you guys really liked. I would say Twa, Lorenzo Il Magnifico, Terraforming Mars, and The Journeys of Marco Polo. And I'll add Teotihuacan to that. Teotihuacan, absolutely. I think all those games are solid slightly heavy medium weight games but medium weight games but on the heavy side of them but i would put all those in the same category i'd put great western trail i would not put uh brass into the same category as uh, great western trail i want to say that for your purposes um all the games that matt just mentioned have for me uh, an additional usefulness that the rules are sticky mm-hmm. uh i there once you unpack a game even if you haven't played it in two months it's going to be fairly quick for you to remember, oh, this is for this, this is for that. There's something intuitive about how the the boards are arranged. Uh, So you'll you'll find yourself remembering it as you go along like I have. As someone who's played brass a dozen times, I still sit down and and have to be totally refreshed on how to play it again because it's a really heavy game. Uh, Last one. Will, uh, I'm a new listener drawn in by the Ricky Royal Premier 2E talk. I'm loving the show and exploring old episodes piecemeal. I just finished the Estates episode in which you say you've never played Mont and I and blame the fact that they're difficult to get a hold of. I imagine this has already been addressed in the past month and a half, but if not, but both games are now available from Asmati Games' website, 50% off, yada, yada. I haven't gotten my impulse played yet, but Mont and I is required reading for a fan of Glory to Rome. Similar, some prefer it for my part, better at two players. Loving the podcast so far. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Will. Um, we played Impulse. Uh, a couple weeks back. Remember, Tom brought a copy. You played it as well. It was the yes. space card game with rockets. Yes. Um, v- felt very heavy. Felt very complicated. Uh, all Carl Chuddick games hurt my brain, but I love them. This one felt um, like I needed at least one or two more plays of it to even grok it. Um, it seemed like there was a lot going on. It's also it's hard to teach a Carl Chuddick game at the end of the night, which Tom had done after we'd already played something. Um, I wasn't like wildly excited to get back to it. Uh, I have not played Montanai. I will definitely check that out. Um, I'll play any Carl Chuddick game. Um, I love Glory to Rome and Innovation um, and Red 7. So we'll definitely uh, check out Montanai. Not like wildly excited to get back to Impulse, but if it was brought out to the table, I would try to learn it again. Your thoughts, Dimitri? You remember playing it? I actually don't. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I apologize. Uh, I, I think there is a, a certain kind of game, a certain genre of game uh, that is really orthogonal to to what I'm about, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, the uh, player interaction supersedes uh, narrative. I, I like games that tell strong stories. Right. Uh, and um, like Ben Hoyt accuses it of being parallel play, right? Mm-hmm. Or was it Ben Hoyt or somebody else who I said that? Yeah, but uh, I prefer parallel play, like... like in in some ways, because I want to feel like, oh, the game is teaching me something. It's taking me somewhere. Uh, and if I have to do all the heavy lifting myself, my my mind starts to think about all the ways that it, too, could have been improved. <laughs> uh, Not a bad movie. Uh, that'll do it for this week. Thank you so much, Dimitri. I'll see you in three months. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> Hopefully sooner. Hopefully sooner. I didn't uh, know it See so you long. when you're... 
your child starts college. Exactly. Perhaps. <laughs> you know? um, thank you so much. We will be back next week. Um, I'm not sure it's either going to be with Jake or Jesse, uh, but I think I'm going to try to do a barrage episode next week because I, I really want to talk about it and review it for you guys. Um, so we'll be back next week. Uh, you've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music you're hearing right now. You might know him as Alfred on the show. Hi, Alfred. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can learn all about us at GameBrainPod.com. Reach me by email at Matthew at GameBrainPod.com. Twitter is GameBrain underscore pod. Instagram is at GameBrainPod. Thanks for listening, and go play some games with friends, or go make some friends with games. <laughs>